We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Ross Feingold, sitting in for Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Professor Jason Yee of City University in Hong Kong, an expert on infrastructure and public policy. Jason, welcome back to ICRT. My pleasure. And on the phone is ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Good evening, Donovan. And great to be here this evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the opening of the Summer Universiade, the United States Section 301 investigation's impact on Taiwanese companies, the Mongolian-Tibetan Affairs Council goes into history, leadership handover in the Gomindang, and President Tsai's approval rating. But first, we'll begin with a blackout. As anyone who was in Taiwan this past Tuesday knows, many homes and offices lost power shortly before 5 p.m., an incident being blamed for now on human error during the course of installing equipment at CPC Taiwan's Datan power plant in Taoyuan. Six generators stopped working, affecting the supply of 4 million kilowatts of electricity. And this was at Taiwan's biggest natural, ga- natural gas power plant, which prov- provides gas to the electric utility Tai Power. With hundreds of thousands of customers losing power, police had to direct traffic on major streets, and people waited in elevators to be rescued. And of course, the political blame game began immediately, with the first victim being Minister of Economic Affairs Li Guang. Donovan, let's begin with you. Can you briefly tell us what it was like in central Taiwan and Taichung during the blackout? Yeah, we had, uh, of course, hundreds of thousands here. There was something like six point, uh, heading on seven million people at some point or another around the country had uh, lost power. We had a couple of million down here. The number of households ranged from 470,000 here in Taichung City uh, and with uh, 30-some-odd thousand in Nanto and so on and so forth. Uh, generally speaking, there's five people in a household. So, yeah, it was at least uh, two million people down here. Now, what's interesting is that uh, you had cases where you had whole streets where, for example, one side of the street would be still lit and one side wouldn't be. You had buildings that would, for example, the Zhongyu department store where you had, uh, you know, one block was still, you know, fully functional and the other blocks were shut down. So it was a very kind of weird selective one. But most importantly, the Central Taiwan Science Park was, was, not, in, was not affected. Most, most people that I've talked to said their power was out for a relatively short period of time. Uh, but traffic was, of course, chaos. Uh, Nanto lost uh, parts of Nanto lost water, and so it was it was alarming. But because it was relatively short for most people, it was it was a, a, a major annoyance, and that was about it. Now, do people in central Taiwan feel that the central government is looking out for their interests when incidents like this happen, or do they feel it's still a rush to restore power in Taipei? Um. <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, most people, I think, feel that yeah, of course, Taipei Taib is going to be prioritized. Um, however, I don't. I haven't had anybody say. I've never. I haven't heard anybody say specifically that Taipei, of course, is going to be prioritized. I think it's just sort of generally assumed. And Jason, when these incidents happen, there's always a debate about whether it's due mm-hmm. to uh, poor infrastructure or the power mix, whether it's it's nuclear or other sources of power, although it seems that this incident was due to human error. But where where does the blame really lie for these kinds of incidents? Because we have had a series of brownouts and and, uh, this ongoing debate about Mm -hmm. Taiwan's electrical infrastructure. So in assessing what happened, where should we start the conversation? 
Yes, uh, I think the uh, the blackout really, uh, of course, the uh, really, um, you know, more the uh, after front reason is the human error. But what's a more profound question is, uh, are we really have a very robusted, uh, we call the uh, energy or or electricity portfolio? And another question is, are we really uh, need to talk about or re-talk about the uh, nuclear versus uh, another option, which is we go back to burning the coal? So, um, you know, uh, for the DPP uh, uh, government, um, you know, of course, the uh, uh, the um, abandon of the nuclear is one of the central policy. But you know, we need, we really need to uh, you know, re-examine how uh, Taiwan. Uh, can be really reaching that goal. If yes, and uh, what's going to be the time frame? You know, I would like to really cite one of the uh, you know, obvious. I'm just I'm doing infrastructure, but I'm not really an energy expert. I would like to cite uh, you know the president of the City University, uh, Guo Wei. He is actually the uh, nuclear expert. You know, uh, there's a trade-off. If we choose to um, you know go back to uh, coal burning. We need to deal with the um, you know uh, the smog and air pollution problem. Whereas, if we uh, talk about nuclear, um, of course that will be an efficient uh, energy source, but um, the safety will be another uh, an, an issue. So um, you know, really the question um, you know we need to start with is really um, look at Taiwan, um, you know, all the uh, environmental currently, and see if. There is anything uh, we could change, you know, step by step for those uh, we call the power or energy portfolio. Well, in in making those decisions, though, is the political where of will there here in Taiwan is, is whether it's from the DPP or or the KMT or are the are the leaders in the government in the legislature trying to take the public in the direction and giving them the information that they need to make these decisions, Jason. Yeah, you know, uh, there's always, uh, you know, just very simple, you know, similar to uh, uh, all different issues, you know, all different issues like, uh, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard. You know, people who would like to uh, really abandon nuclear power source, I think the first step is for them to start from saving their own energy first. So, um, you know, uh, when people are losing the electricity, there's no air condition, there's no AC, you know, all those things happening. Um, are we really still uh, looking and into the uh, you know 2025 of you know completely abandon of the nuclear? Uh, are we still looking at that goal? So um, I think you know as I keep saying is uh, we really really need to uh, re-examine the current status and see if we have this uh, capacity and uh, are we really ready to do certain things instead of just like a slogan uh, you know. You know, in Taiwan, a lot of things is very talk about the slogan or vision, but how to really implement those things? That will be a practical issue. Everybody, not just a political leader, you know, uh, you know, also the people need to really face to. Well, Donovan in Central Taiwan, you certainly don't lack for air pollution. What, what's the view that there on on the proper mix? Oh, well, yeah, I, I think actually uh, Professor Nee's hit on a, a lot of very, very important points here. Right now, the uh, basically sort of ground zero for trying to build renewable energies is Zhanghua, particularly and to a lesser degree uh, off the coast of uh, Taichung. What they're trying to do is, of course, build the, all the offshore wind. Um, now, the problem is, is, that, is that when you have, with, with a lot of these renewables and solar, wind, and whatever, they they tend to tout the numbers of what's the installed capacity. In other words, they you know x number of gigawatts that the the that they can produce. 
unfortunately, what happens in practice is that what the installed capacity is, is that that's in the ideal conditions, meaning that if the wind is blowing it, you know, at high speeds, if the sun's fully bright, that's, that's how much it could do at 100% capacity, but it almost never reaches 100% capacity. And so I think a lot of their estimates, and, and I've talked to some people in the industry, and it looks like their, their timeline, um, it's not that they can't install the, you know, all, all of the capacity they need to replace uh, nuclear. The, the difficulties are that when, once it's installed, which the timeline is probably optimistic because the, the technical difficulties, particularly in the offshore wind, are higher, I think, than the government is, is, is allowing for. So we're going to have, so it's going to take quite a, a little bit longer, I think, than they, they estimate. And once it's installed, it's not going to generate as much power as advertised, because generally speaking, the, the numbers are somewhere around, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of what the installed number is. So we're, we're going to see, I think, uh, a much slower, in, at least in the short term, we're going to see a slower implementation of these alternative energies than I think the government would like. A long term, I think there's a lot of potential in it, but I think it's going to be a much slower, it's going to be a lot bigger of a slog than I think most people realize. So I think that, and now the government set the deadline on phasing out all nuclear power at 2025. That is uh, a kind of a politically motivated number, uh, I suspect. Because by 2025, if Tsai has a two-term two presidency, she leaves office in 2024. So there's no way that the, that, that the Thai government could be held accountable for that number. Well, power and elections. I'm sure we'll be talking about these mm -hmm. issues uh, for many months and years to come. Mm -hmm. And the blackout came, though, just as the international spotlight turned to Taiwan for the summer universiad. Almost 8,000 athletes are expected in Taiwan for the 11-day sporting event, one of the largest sports events after the Olympics themselves. Joining us on the phone to better understand the university games is Dr. Donna Long, an expert in young people's involvement in sport and how new media technology promotes sport participation. Dr. Wong is a research fellow at the Center for Business and Society at Coventry Business School in the United Kingdom. Dr. Wong, good evening. Evening to you too, Ross. Dr. Wong, where do the university games rank within the international sporting calendar? The university games, as the name suggests, um, targets predominantly university students. So naturally, the audience the event is going to attract is a lot less than a sports mega event like the Olympic Games or even the FIFA Football World Cup. Although it's officially um, publicized as an event second to the Olympic Games, it is at best a second or even third order sports event in terms of the global appeal, sponsorship and media coverage it is going to get. So um, for a second order event, you're talking about sports event like the Commonwealth Games Rugby World Cup. So for a third order sports event, you're looking at regional games such as Pan American Games and Asian Games. So I would say probably um, the university games for somewhere in between second and third order sports events on the continuum. Media reports indicate that approximately 8,000 athletes will be participating in the summer games in Taipei, which is slightly less than recent university games. What do you account for this difference? Well, there could be a number of possible reasons, like um, reasons from terrorism, um, like the competing attention from a number of sports events held in August, such as the recently um, concluded World Athletic Championship in London and the upcoming um, Badminton World Championship. So, but anyway, the biggest reason, I guess, should be political. 
countries supporting a one-China policy generally do not want to be openly seen as supporting an event held in um, Taiwan. So China has already officially announced that it will not be sending participating teams, although athletes can travel to Taiwan and compete individually. So basically, you can sense a political tension here um, that has been building up since um, Chai Ing-wen took office in 2016. So if a global political powerhouse has flexed its muscle, would one risk severing any diplomatic ties over a sport event? My, my guess, basically, it's no. So, yeah, it's probably one of the main reasons for seeing the reduced interest in the Taipei game. How would you characterize international and regional interest in watching the games on TV or by live streaming on the Internet? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the targeted participants and audience for this event is quite narrow. So for a start, there's, there's no star appeal. That is, um, that there won't be any um, world-famous athletes um, that will be present at the event. So most of the athletes you'll be seeing are just um, unknown, maybe students or maybe budding athletes. So there's less incentive for global media coverage. So with any luck, you'll probably end up narrow casting to a very niche audience group who are students who have been following the games or who have friends or families or even children, I think, participating in the games. So if you manage to catch their attention at all, so um, students are not really who the sponsors are after. And in addition, I think August is a very busy sports calendar month, not to mention that it's summer holiday in the European and American continent. So when it comes to sport, it is still very Eurocentric. So I think a straw poll conducted in Taipei even suggests that close to a third of residents in Taipei is not even aware of the World University Games that's held in, in their own city. So that pretty much gives you an idea about the appeal of the event. How do athletes become eligible to participate? Should we expect to see any world record participants at these games? Um, for a start, I think the participating country needs to have a national sports federation recognized by FISU. So other than that, um, participants need to be student athletes who have not been out of the university or higher education institute for more than a year. So probably um, they'll be between the ages of um, 17 and 28 years old. Then again, um, you have to reach the minimum qualifying standard basically to participate and to qualify for the event. So um, athletes have to go to time trial to get selected. So for promising athletes at the lower age limit, say 17, um, some do treat this as a foray, probably a dry run, a rehearsal into the global sports arena where um, there are athletes who have gone on um, to participate and win medals at the Olympic Games through their previous, I think, participation at the World University Game. Although, I think, not expected, um, you never know if any world records will be created. Taiwan has hosted several international sporting events in recent years, such as the World Games and the Deaf Olympics. Why are local governments in Taiwan so interested in these events? For a very simple reason. Um, so basically, it's to get the government to open the public purse for infrastructural development to reinvigorate and regenerate their respective cities. So there's, there's probably no better pretext than this. This is all done for common good. So um, yeah, with the money, you get to revamp the whole city, the transport system, the airport, and maybe public services as well, as you can see in the World University Games. So other key reasons would also be to put a city on the world map, boost tourism income both internally and externally, and probably less so to attract an investment income through a demonstration of the city's ability to hold an event this scale. Do host cities and organizing committees usually see an influx of visitors in addition to the athletes? Do family and friends come as well? I guess this is probably one of the key reasons why cities are vying to host sports events. Um, 
participating athletes are almost like ambassadors or publicists for, for the whole city. It is often hoped that visitors and athletes' good impression of the city will help to bring in more tourists in the years to come um, when they revisit the country or even help spread the words or even when they post photos on Instagram, um, Twitter. So it, it's like a huge advertising opportunity for the whole city. But then again, this is not always guaranteed an influx of um, tourists in the years to come. By definition, the participants are university students. Does this limit how much they spend while visiting the host country? Um, not necessarily. You've, you also got to remember um, they, they generally do, they do travel with their coaches or even friends or family. They do follow along. So you've got to take into consideration um, their, their spending power as well. Anyway, um, the student spending power may not be correlated to their status um, as students. I, I would like to think that the limiting factors are likely to come from the distance and transport to and for the athlete village to the city centre where they get to spend the money. And more importantly, um, their competition schedule versus their free time. Will they have the free time to actually venture out into the city centre to spend? Can the host city normally expect a profit after accounting for the costs of building infrastructure, the games themselves, and opening and closing ceremonies? Honestly, I think studies on large-scale sports events have generally pointed to the fact that it's a lost cause in terms of generating a profit. Um, things generally went downhill after the 1984 Commercial Olympic Games. Um, I think where cities try to outdo the previous event, making it bigger, better and more expensive in the recent years. So it will definitely be in the rates, not to mention the heightened um, security state of alert, which I'm sure the Taiwan government will enhance um, security measures that are in place, given the recent risk terrorist attack. Um, extra costs will certainly be involved here, to say the least. The Taipei Games has been challenged in attracting multinational corporate sponsorship. What do, you, what do companies look to gain by sponsoring the Games? As far as I see, um, as you mentioned, sponsors for these events are, are regional. Some of these sponsors are not known outside Taiwan. So I'm not quite familiar with some of these sponsors. So they may probably gain from sponsorship activation program within the Taiwan market. I don't think they will quite reach the international market. By sponsoring a sports event, they are also fulfilling their corporate social responsibility. And as the games begin, what should we look to as far as measurements for the game's success? Well, there are several soft and hard indicators um, we can work with. Um, for instance, um, social indicators, that is, um, the feel-good factor among residents, like what are the residents saying or feeling about the e event? Is it something positive? Is it something negative? Do they think that it's entirely a nuisance? So um, global media coverage and reports, um, is this one of the talk about events? How much coverage is this event getting? Is it something positive or is it something negative that I think reporters have um, written about? Um, political indicators such as um, international prestige, diplomatic ties, does this event help to basically um, form better relationship with countries? Economic indicators like financial turnover from the event, jobs created by the event, tourist arrival number during and long after the event, the multiplier effect from hotel accommodation, tourism income, and probably on the issue of event legacy, such as sports participation rate, um, take-up rate of new sports introduced during the game, use of the new purpose-built sports facilities. So some of these impacts may take up to a few years to even start showing up. I was speaking with Donna Wong of Coventry Business School. And now back to our studio guests. Donovan, let's start out with a view from central Taiwan. Is the public in that part of Taiwan energized by the games? Not that I'm aware of. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, would you say that there hasn't been much promotion beyond the Taipei area then to, to engage people throughout the island? Well, no. I mean, of course, the Dutch swim team has energized uh, the country, I believe. But uh, outside of that, not much. Uh, well, that certainly brings into question whether or not the games might be successful. Uh, Jason, uh, from a tourist perspective, what's the purpose of uh, organizing these kinds of events? Of course, all those uh, international events, no matter no, no matter is um, you know, Olympics or whatever, that's uh, basically uh, an attraction of the uh, international's um, uh, view, and you know it becomes a spotlight. But you know, sports has its meaning as, uh, by itself. So you know, the spirit it brings to you, uh, that will be uh, a very very positive. So that's how, that's why uh, Taiwan Taipei has a lot of effort try to really uh, make this uh, become successful. You know, um, the really meaning uh, for Taiwan for all those international things is really bring Taiwan into the um, uh, international arena. So um, you know. Because we don't really have a lot of uh, uh, such things, um, you know, happen internationally. So, um, um, you know, when uh, people come to uh, Taipei for this game, that will be a very, very good, uh, you know, by uh, attracting people and uh, promoting Taiwan uh, as a long term. Um, you know, the uh, these things will be uh, fitting to the um, how the interna- internationalization of the tourism of. Uh, Taiwan as uh, one of the central policy. But Taiwan has recent experience hosting similar events, such as the World Games in Kaohsiung in 2009, the Deaf Olympics in Taipei, uh, the same year, Flora Expo in Taipei in 2010. Do these things really have a long-term impact on tourism arrivals? You know, I think the uh, at least one of the uh, uh, unique part of those sports is usually it brings in infrastructure, just like Olympics. You know, look in Japan, look in the Tokyo. They uh, you know, really start building things. Uh, of course, uh, in Taiwan, uh, originally we tried to make the dome, you know, become hosting uh, these games. Um, you know, but we we have a lot of things. Uh, for example, you know, uh, we have a very very, you know, innovative uh, painting on the MRT, which is you know, already bring into uh, um, you know people's view. Um, it's very very creative. So it, it could be big as infrastructure, it could be small as uh, any kind of promotion. But once you associate with those international uh, events, you will be at least have some kind of positive uh, effect on the uh, tourism of Taiwan. So we shouldn't just be looking at uh, the coverage of the events in the coming days, but the long-term uh, use of the infrastructure that yeah. will be uh, left behind afterwards, such as... Uh, uh, renovations to public facilities yes. or the uh, finishing the construction mm-hmm. of the MRT line uh, that will bypass uh, through some of the areas where activities for the events will occur. Uh, Donovan, what, what do you think of the investment in the games? Well, I, I actually, I, I, to address something that I think Professor Nee just uh, spoke about, uh, I think he's he, he's right that ta- this is this is a great opportunity for Taiwan to, sh- to showcase creativity. Uh, and he did a great, you know, as he noted, you know, for example, those MRT decorations, there was a worldwide coverage. You know, I do Taiwan News in English, the Facebook page, which there's a lot of reaction to that. Um, and I've seen a lot of international coverage of it. So it, it, that is a great way to showcase Taiwan and bring a lot of attention to it. Here in Taichung, we've got the uh, Floral Expo coming up uh, next year. 
uh, and we've got the East Asian uh, Youth Games coming up uh, the following year. So we've got quite a bit coming in here. Now, Mayor Lin Jialong, he's uh, targeting 1.5, I believe, 1, 1, 1 million, if memory serves, uh, Japanese tourists. Uh, he's targeting trying to get 1 million Japanese tourists this coming year for the Floral Expo uh, here to Taichung City alone versus about 1.5 now. Um, and, you know, I think that's an ambitious goal, but, you know, if, if, it, if he's successful, then it will really highlight Taiwan and Taichung. Well, Jason, you're, you're an expert in moving tourists to their destinations. Is, is that a realistic goal for Taichung? Yeah, as I said, you know, uh, in, the, in the tourism, um, you know, building infrastructure, building uh, transportation is one thing, but the most important is the content. You know, what's the, the, what would be the attraction? So I think you know both software and the uh, hardware need to be really um, you know fitting to each other and um, you know I think uh, you know any kind of those event you know for uh, expo um, you know uh, any kind of sports games they will be uh, definitely have some kind of positive uh, you know influence to the uh, the city we want to promote it. Well, the interesting thing from this conversation, though, and I'll throw this over to you, Donovan, is we haven't talked about what it means for Taiwan's sporting culture itself. We've talked about tourist arrivals. We've talked about uh, international coverage of Taiwan. We've talked about the infrastructure that will be left behind for the public to use after the games. But we haven't talked about uh, what, what it will do for improving the uh, abilities and the programs that exist for t sports in Taiwan itself. Yeah, that's a good question, and to be honest with you, I don't have a great answer, because the, the current government, I know, has repeatedly promised to uh, increase the amount of uh, funding and support for sports, uh, but that's been said before. So the question is, is that how much of it is going to actually translate into action, how much of it is actually going to produce results, and to be honest with you, I don't know. Well, on that note, we'll leave the world of sport and turn to the world of business and talk about U.S.-China-Taiwan trade relations. Last Monday, President Trump announced his government would initiate a Section 301 investigation. Section 301 is a part of a domestic U.S. law that allows the U.S. to impose trade sanctions on foreign countries that violate trade agreements or engage in unfair trade practices. When negotiations move from Failure to actually sanctioning, the U.S. plans to raise import duties on China's products as it means to rebalance some of the unfair trade practices that President Trump is angry about. Naturally, this will affect Taiwan companies that do business in China. Uh, Donovan, do you hear Taiwanese companies that uh, are based in central Taiwan are worried how U.S. trade actions might impact their operations in China? Well, I mean, fundamentally, one thing that I think a lot of people forget, there's a lot of talk about when people talk about, you know, Taiwan, China is Taiwan's biggest trade partner, and, you know, it's, and it surpassed the U.S. some years ago, is, of course, that really, in reality, is that a huge percentage of the exports from Taiwan that go to China are, are really components for products that are then assembled for ultimate sale in the U.S., Europe, Japan, and, 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 and other markets. So that really a lot of, uh, of Taiwan's exports are really kind of going via China to the rest of the world, whereas before they tended to be more direct. So yeah, there's going to be a major impact if these, if these are fields where Taiwanese businesses are the strongest. 
Well, what are the possible policy responses from Taiwan then, Jason, to uh, potential U.S. trade action against uh, Taiwanese companies that are operating in China? You know, when I look at this news, I think the the most uh, you know important uh, message behind this is, um, you know, I think it will be uh, Donald Trump's view about the uh, you know um, how they you know the general view to the uh, Chinese um, uh, company operating. Uh, in or toward uh, USA, but you know when we look at the other side of, uh, I would like to share with you one of the news on the other side of the, uh, uh, like the China side. Uh, taking example of Hong Kong, you know there's a message you know showing uh, Chinese government is trying to nationalize a lot of their company. Uh, one of the recent policy re- uh, review uh, from the you know Chinese central government is. You know they try to make uh, at least one uh, two third of the uh, Hong Kong list Chinese SOE become having some kind of party involvement in the uh, uh, such type of uh, company. So uh, what I try to say is, uh, if for this uh, you know uh, sanction uh, you know section uh, three hundred one uh, toward men in China and with the other side is the Chinese government nationalized their company, those type of things could be you know really. Uh, you know, become sort of like the trade war. You know, that be uh, it will be like country to country, state to state, kind of um, you know things. So that will be uh, you know Taiwan as uh, we operating as we having the uh, company in mainland China sell the product to mainland China. We also sell product to the USA. So under that type of things, I think we will be in a very pa- passive kind of position. But you know what we would do is uh, try to really um, getting the most update uh, situation uh, you know from both sides, and then uh, try to really uh, you know adjust ourselves and um, you know try to fit into both sides uh, policy. I think that would be one of the smart and wise way to go. Is there any potential for Taiwan companies to move more manufacturing back to Taiwan in order to avoid being caught up in potential U.S. sanctions on products that are made in China? I think there is a possibility, but uh, you know, it will go back to uh, really uh, the original reasoning why the, those Taiwanese companies want to move their uh, you know manufacturing their plan to mainland China. I think it's because of the cost. You know, this is low cost labor, and uh, those uh, incentive in mainland China side is not really as uh, as good as before. So of course there will be uh, some kind of uh, uh, intention for those uh, chi- uh, Taiwanese company move back or move outside from mainland China. You may not be go back to Taiwan. You could go. You could be go to uh, Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, uh, those things. But Taiwanese, gov- you know, Taiwanese government could do is try to re- you know re- really uh, improve of the uh, environment, and so that you know uh, by taking the full advantage of this opportunity by attracting more Taiwanese company coming back. And that, that's a bit of a problem, um, and this is this is an issue I, I've talked to a lot of people about in government. It, and the the problem is, of course, is that there's a lot of companies that really do want to come back to Taiwan to operate because uh, the people here are skilled. There's much much less uh, staff turnover, and it's not terribly expensive. The problem is is finding the proper land. And this is, this is a huge problem because of the way the zoning works within Taiwan. They keep trying to expand. The, the, the current industrial parks tend to be poorly, poorly structured. So if you're a small business, you don't need so much land. Basically, they offer you two large plots 
or the plots are generally inappropriate for one reason or another, unless you're a very, very large company. So they're not geared to the small, small, medium-sized enterprises. But uh, and when they try to expand science, uh, sorry, when they try to expand, expand industrial parks here locally in Taiwan, what ends up happening is that farmers or uh, other landowners don't want to sell the land to the the you know the proposed industrial park expansion because they want to hold out and hold on to the land so that it can, they can sell it to property developers for other other types of products because they think they'll get more money. So I, I know that you know in pretty much around the country, especially here in central Taiwan, but this is this is a national problem, mm-hmm. is that they can't get the land and they can't get the right size plots and they can't get uh, a lot of the, some of these very very basic things. So you end up with a lot of you end up with a situation where, for example, here in Taichung, we've got something like seventeen thousand illegal factories that the government knows about mm-hmm. and have given licenses to temporary licenses to until they can move into an industrial park, but they don't have suitable industrial park locations for them to move to. So this can keeps getting kicked down the road. Um, so until they've stopped, until they've solved this, this, this is going to be con- a continuous problem. But there's tons of businesses, and I've, again, I've mm-hmm. spoken to uh, people whose job in government is to bring them back, and they, they're, they're incredibly frustrated because the intention to move back is there, the economic conditions and the almost everything is in place, but they've got nowhere to go. Um, you know, they and so there's there's a, a lot of frustration on on the part of the businesses that want to come back. Now I know that there's some discussion uh, I, I've heard again through, through you know through private channels that there there's there's a lot of potential solutions to this. Of course, one that I. I suggested and may this may go forward is of course dual purposing of land for example uh but we'll see if that actually gets turned into 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 actual practice but the idea would be of course for example that land could be could have multiple designations not just farmland it could be farmland or or industrial or residential in which case the landowner could then rent the land for industrial use but hold on to it uh, for potential household use in the future, so that they know they feel confident that if uh, you know a property developer comes along with a big offer down the road, that they can sell the land. Well, it certainly would be ironic if President Trump's uh, trade policy causes a change in Taiwan's land policies in order to mm-hmm. encourage Taiwan companies to return to Taiwan from China. Yes, <laughs> we have to take a short break now, but we'll be back after these commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. We're going to continue this half of the show looking at issues on the mainland, and we're going to start with Taiwan's relations with Tibet and Mongolia. This past week, the government announced that the Mongolian and Tibetan Affairs Commission will close. The commission, established in the early years of the ROC, exercises the central government's authority over Tibet and Mongolia. Its cultural activities will be absorbed by the Ministry of Culture, and to the extent it maintained a policy and political function, These will be absorbed into the Mainland Affairs Council or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Donovan, give us a domestic political context on this. Does this have more to do with the DPP 
demonstrating incremental steps to separate Taiwan's identity from the Republic of China and the historical uh, legacy government uh, policies that go with that? Well, I think that would definitely be the KMT view of it. Um, the, you know that this is this is a step away from you know ROC nationalism, but I, I think that pretty much most, almost everybody in the country, pretty kind of recognize there's kind of, of an absurdity in this because obviously you know the ROC or the government here has not exercised any kind of authority over Tibet or Mongolia ever. Well, Jason, give us a, a bit of personal experience. Uh, you were educated in the local schools uh, at a time when Mongolia and Tibet mm. were shown on the map as being mm. part of the Republic of mm. China. What, what, how did people in Taiwan feel about this government decision? I mean, do they care about Mongolia and Tibet at all? Yeah, I think there's uh, really a generation things. In my generation or people older than me, yeah, we do see the you know the so-called China map when we are in the elementary school. There's a full Chinese, you know, uh, territory including Tibet and uh, Mongolia, even even the outer part. So, um, of course, uh, the ROC, uh, you know, government or administration never ever have any kind of authority over those two territories. But um, you know, um, there's a historical things when the uh, Kuomintang, you know, um, in the um, you know very early age in the Sun Yat-sen and the uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek era, yeah, there was a, a period of time, you know, they do cover those uh, uh, territory. Uh, but, you know, uh, history changed. You know, I always joking with my friend, it's, um, you, know, you know, in Taiwan, in certain level, you know, the geography was dominated by the history or by the political view. So, um, yeah, uh, function-wise, uh, Tibet and uh, Mongolia uh, office uh, is really uh, not have any uh, really practical function uh, inside the government. But, you know, emotion-wise, you know, some people, uh, especially uh, people older than my my age, like my father's age, um, they might still remember, oh, there's uh, some kind of uh, Mongolian uh, and Tibet office uh, in Taiwan. Cutting those two offices off is just like cutting a lens, you know, off, and uh, they might have some kind of emotional uh, feeling, um, you know, instead of just you know, looking at the function. And Donovan, how, how do you think uh, the reaction will be in Tibet and Mongolia? Do they care that Taiwan was still maintaining an office? Hmm. I'd be surprised if they even knew. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I remember those maps uh, when I arrived in Taiwan, and uh, I I'm, I'm, was originally born in Canada. Uh, you know, I'm the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. National, but um, in Taichung, not the not the Taipei one, but uh, and so I remember it was really quite jarring because when I when I arrived in Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese would generally say, "Oh, oh, China's the second largest country in the world." Now, of course, you know that included Mongolian territory, um, and you know as a Canadian, uh, it, you know we consider ourselves the second largest country in the world, and so this was a little bit of a jarring statement to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to see how this one plays out in the context of cross-strait relations. And on that note, let's move on to developments at Taiwan's opposition party, formerly known as the Chinese Nationalist Party, or of course in Chinese, the Zhongguo Guomindang. This Sunday, Wu Doni takes over as party chairman after an election this past May when he defeated incumbent chair Hong Xiuju. Wu's no stranger to politics, having served as Nanto County Magistrate in the 1980s, Gaoxiong Mayor in the 1990s, 
a legislator in the 2000s, premier from 2009 to 2012, and vice president under Mying Joe from 2012 to 2016. Wu is now 69 years old. So, Jason, with all this experience and being 69 years old, is Wu the new hope for leadership renewal at the Gobi Tag? Yeah, you know, uh, personally, I met uh, Mr. Wu a couple of times uh, in different occasions. Of course, uh, you know, personally, I think he's a very, very uh, smart and uh, very knowledgeable uh, person. Uh, he studied history. Um, so, uh, of course, he knows a lot of things. He has a very, very experienced. Um, but, of course, um, in uh, really into uh, looking into KMT, which is Kuomintang, um, you know, how to really make uh, the young generation being um, in charge or being uh, having opportunity is one of the urgent issue. Uh, it's a good or bad uh, because you know Kuomintang has uh, is actually a, a party with you know more than a hundred year old history. There's a history and a lot of uh, people in the party, so uh, uh, that's a good part. But the uh, the not so good part is uh, the young generation is not really easy to uh, step out, uh, have uh, their uh, stage to show their capacity. So I think um, you know the chairman Wu uh, once. Um, Taking the uh, uh, Kuomintang, um, you know, I think obviously we're looking for the election uh, of the next uh, upcoming, um, you know, no matter it's uh, mayors or elect, you know, uh, presidential election. Uh, how to really uh, linking um, the young generation, uh, the voters, uh, and the people inside the party? Uh, you really working with Mr. Wu? Uh, that will be one of the most urgent issue uh, we need to uh, really face on. Donovan, uh, how do people in central Taiwan and southern Taiwan still view Wu, given his long experience in governance in Nanto and Kaohsiung? I, I think he's kind of in a, uh, he's kind of fading into history. I mean, there was a time when you know, if for example they they had brought him in in the you know the mid two thousands, I think that would have actually energized the the, the party. Um, you know, he did. He did win popular. He did win a popular election. He was at first appointed as the mayor of Kaohsiung, and then he actually won a popular election there. Um, so there was a time when he was, I think, kind of relevant and uh, you know had had some interest. He obviously has a, a, you know good connections. He's a long-term political operator um, and does have a lot of very good connections in the center and south. The problem. The problems are is that. Uh, first of all, he's, his connections are with, uh, you know, as, as Professor Nee just noted, really with a much older class that's kind of fading. In other words, the political factions, for example, he's going to have lukewarm, much better, you know, connections with them than, say, Hong Xiuzhu did, uh, less, say, than Wang Jinping. Uh, but, you know, those are, uh, it's kind of a, the slowly fading out political class. Pretty much nobody under the age of 55 or 60 cares about them anymore. Um, and, you know, if you saw his campaign video geared toward uh, the youth of Taiwan, it was one of the most, it, was, it ranged between uh, humiliating and painful to watch. Um, so he's, and his primary, his primary function seems to be to try and bring, bring the party back to the Maingzhou era politically, which got roundly defeated in the last electoral, uh, you know, the the last electoral cycle. Now that's more popular than Hong Xiaoju's vision, and he's probably going to be very good at unifying the party. 
he's he'll be good at I think motivating the play, the the base as Professor Nee noted. He's he's got a lot of experience, uh, and you know he's got the he's got a long history and good connections. So I think he'll be good for unifying the party, but I don't think that he has any kind of vision for where to go for the future. I think it, he's got pretty much. He's a representative of the past, and so far, everything that I've seen that he's he's talked about, pretty much is still looking backwards. So I don't think that he, I think he'll keep the party going a little bit longer than if Hong Shouju had been had been reelected, but I don't see much of a future. Jason, do you agree? It seems like there's a struggle for Chairman Wu between. Uh, building on his past, uh, where he was known for uh, personal relationships and just being a, a good guy that that people got to know well and voted for him, versus having a policy vision. W- where does he need to take the party? Yeah, I think uh, just like uh, Donovan said, uh, yeah, Mr. Wu's uh, biggest um, um, uh, contribution is really stabilize and unify the party, you know, because of his. Uh, you know, very very long term, um, you know, a political resource and a connection. And uh, another part uh, I want to uh, uh, highlight. Uh, I think possibly Mr. Wu has you know, his view to the uh, close trade relationship to mainland China. That have things that will be more safe and the political correct, uh, possibly than Hong Xiuju. Yeah. Um, you mean with the public here in Taiwan? Yeah. In the and also on the China side, uh, I think I think as I understand his view, it will be more in the middle is not too aggressively uh, toward the uh, uh, unification. It will be uh, or not so much uh, per the independent side. It will be more just keep the status quo. You know, as um, you know, keep the necessary uh, vague part that have things. So I think uh, in terms of those policy, um, that will be uh, more. Possibly more acceptable for uh, the people here, and uh, more acceptable, many, you know, maybe from in China's uh, side as well. But uh, as I as I said, you know, um, how to really bring the uh, young generation from Kuomintang to really uh, get into um, making their contribution, get uh, get those people on the stage, and uh, try to uh, cultivate, uh, try to really uh, you know uh, develop the future political star. Yeah, that is something Kuomintang is not so good compared to DPP. You know, uh, when I look at Kuomintang, you know, uh, the party with a long history, um, it will be very easy to making a young guys into when they join this party. Those young young guys, no matter what age it is, you will be act like an old man. You know, you know. So because of this, the the committee, the way, you know, the you know those uh, hierarchy. That will be just like you get into some sort of, uh, you know, palace, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, big company with uh, uh, many, many year long, um, you know, uh, history. So um, how to change this, uh, you know, vertical hierarchy and, uh, you know, be into more flexible, more, um, you know, uh, you know, opportunity for the young people. That will be something Kuomintang really, you know, really uh, need to uh, look into. Well, we've heard that pledge from some of the recent party leaders, including Hong, who said she would uh, encourage the development of young people. And Maing Zhou also used to talk about that during his tenure as party chairman, which uh, ended after the disastrous elections in 2014. Uh, Donovan, do you see any hope for uh, youth and leadership renewal in the KMT? 
I think it'd be extremely hard. I think I think actually, uh, you know, Professor Need there just nailed it uh, in that essentially the party is is historically a very hierarchical, a very patriarchal, very traditional, and you're expected to go through. Uh, you know, a certain number of years before you, you're given any trust, before you're given any kind of um, role in the, you know, actual role in the party. You're sort of expected to be a follower, and then once you've proved your chops as a follower, after 20, 30 years, you, you start to get a little bit more of a responsibility. Uh, I think the DPP's done a far better job of cultivating a, a younger a younger base, and they're quite energized right now. So it's going to be a, a tough one. And youth right now in Taiwan, of course, you know, it's the Chinese Nationalist Party, and there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for China or unification or any of those things. So there, there's not. It, it actually has a lot of the same problems with the military, but it's it's so that I don't really see. There's there, he's going to have to really do a, some serious. Uh, root and branch changes to the party before you know before it's going to be attractive to young people and that the culture of the party uh is such that it will you know accelerate and bring in a youthful vibrant uh energetic people who can really kind of re-energize the party and i i don't see that happening now i could be wrong though Speaking of re-energizing, and before we go, let's look at how things are going on the other side at the DPP. So recent polling data on President Tsai's approval has it hovering around 50%, and her cabinet's approval rating is hovering around 60%. These numbers came out shortly before the blackout and are probably going to fall in the next round of polling. But keeping with our speed round theme, Jason, could you give us three things that you think uh, President Tsai needs to do to improve those approval ratings? Yeah, I think um, in you know generally uh, when I look at the DPP administration, uh, once uh, President Tsai, uh, her um, you know uh, administration getting to power, a lot of sensitive things uh, has been uh, discussed or even proved. You know, uh, pension problem, you know, uh, forward-looking infrastructure development program. And also uh, a lot of uh, you know uh, the energy policy, for so I think you know uh, I think there's only one thing for the uh, DPP uh, government really need to uh, uh, be uh, you know cautious. It's um, before making any decision, there should be you know the uh, you know from you know like the political, not only the political decision but also the uh, uh scientific evidence or reviewing process uh need to be transparent to the people so um for example people arguing a lot of uh a decision about the uh, having large scale rail development in every city of taiwan that's part of the main uh project inside the uh, uh the forward looking uh infrastructure development uh you know the feasibility study is not really has been done for all of those sub projects and that type of uh, light rail or rail project is going to be a very big uh, consumer of future electricity so those things turn out to be linking all each you know all together so um those things uh, need to be reexamined uh, by the uh, um you know professional not only just the political people have having the promise to the uh, you know the general public and um, without any kind of uh, um, you know professional reviewing, so that will be one of the my major 
uh, suggestion to the uh, DPP um, uh, administration. Thank you. And uh, Donovan, over to you. Can you give us uh, three key items to improve those poll ratings? Yeah, I mean, obviously they need to get the, the power situation under control. Um, Thai power is uh, kind of a, uh, an archaic monster as an organization, so that's going to be a tough one. Um, but, yeah, that would certainly be a, a, a big help. Um, the, uh, you know, as Professor Neat noted, the infrastructure plan is poorly thought out, I think. Uh, it, there's a lot of, I, he didn't say that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but, uh, it, the, the, but he talked about the feasibility studies and with a lot of this stuff. For example, there are, there are MRT lines that are planned that replicate existing TR, TRA lines that don't really serve much of a purpose. Uh, a lot of this stuff is not really well thought out. So, and then, but that's largely, I think, with an eye on the le- next electoral cycle, and to break up the traditional KMT patronage networks that were tied with construction. Um, I think the third thing it would be that there needs to be a sense of clear vision, and this is going to be a difficult one because. I think Taiwan is moving away from pan-green, pan-blue politics, which is, of course, you know, the identity politics. And essentially, the pan-greens have won that argument. The problem is, is that now I think that people's interests, concerns are starting to move much more along the lines of a European-style left-right split. And both, you know, conservative, liberal, uh, or, uh, you know, economic... uh, you know, free markets versus uh, welfare. And the difficulty is is that both the KMT and the DPP have very left-wing and very right-wing elements within each party. So there's going to be a lot of disappointment, uh, no matter which of those parties were, would be in power, is that the, that the expectations of people are starting to move in those directions. And so that there, it's going to be very hard to kind of thread the needle on that one, because you're going to get because the expectations, if you're on one, if you're left or right, you know, either economically or in terms of social policy, there's going to be a lot of disappointment. Pretty much, no matter what the party does, so it's going to be a very difficult needle to thread. So one way or another, they're going to need to try and find things that will energize the those disparate elements, which is a very difficult thing to do. And that's where we'll leave it this week, here on Taiwan This Week. I've been joined in the studio tonight by Jason E, a professor at City University of Hong Kong. Good night, Jason. Thank you. And Donovan Smith of ICRT. Good night, Donovan. And thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Ross Feingold. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps, where you can get access to all of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.